Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord be with all of us gathered here and those who are in our Family Life Center as well as those who are leaning into this time of worship and uh, time of study from afar. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. In just a moment, we're going to be in John chapter 14. But on the way there, I want to catch up those of you who may be new to our series or new to our church community. We've been in a series of conversations in which we have been examining the seven I am statements made by Jesus in the gospel of John. And it's important that we do that because in this season of Lent, we are in a season of reflection, a season of introspection and repentance in which we consider who are we, what have we become, and what are we becoming in his name? And we recognize that everything that we ever attempt to become is completely determined by who he already is. That who I am is informed and transformed by who he is. What we've been saying through this entire series is something like G.K. Beale said years ago, that what people revere, they resemble, whether for their ruin or their restoration. And we have found that to be true, that if you revere something with all your mind, all your heart, all your strength, you begin to take on the particular attributes and characteristics of that thing that you revere, no matter what it is. And what Paul has called us to do is to fix our reverence, our attention, our gaze upon him. And in so doing, we said it's a little bit like looking in a mirror. I know you're getting tired of seeing this clip, but it's there on purpose because we're going somewhere with it in a couple of weeks. On Ash Wednesday, I said it's like looking in a mirror because when we fix our gaze upon the cross, we consider everything that it took to place him on the cross. Every one of our crimes, every one of our sins, every bit of our imperfection. All of our woundedness was placed upon him. But as we consider what took his life from him, it's as if we look in a mirror because we cannot look at him without recognizing the parts of us that put him there. And in seeing all of his goodness and loveliness and beauty and grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion, we come to a stark humiliation in realizing that so many of those things are not in us. And so as we fix our gaze upon him, the parts of us that are unchristly, slowly, as Paul says, begin to disappear. And as time goes on, day by day, degree by degree, we become transformed into his very image and we take on the very characteristics of Christ 
So that by the end of our journey, when he looks upon us, Paul says, those who have fixed our eyes upon him are so transformed that it's as if Christ is looking at us like looking in a mirror and he sees his own reflection. See, if I wanted to simplify that, I would simply say, I am who he says I am. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing other than who he says I am. And for some of us today, that is very hopeful news because I promise you somebody has shown up today in worship. And if you were asked to finish the sentence, it would finish differently. Some of you would say, I am exhausted. I am alone. I am ashamed. I am afraid. I am angry. I am lost. I am unsure. And if that's where you are today, I need you to know you've come at a good time. You've come to the right place at the right time because the I am statement that we are studying this morning may be precisely for you because today we study I am the way and the truth and the life. And for somebody gathered here today, that may be a word of salvation for you in the midst of a kind of lostness you can't find your way out of. But for us to study that I am statement, we're going to have to unpack several layers here because that is simultaneously the most glorious, beautiful, powerful, good news, a word of liberation and salvation and freedom, but it is also at times a word that can be misunderstood and certainly mishandled. Can I tell you what I mean by that? So in the scriptures, we got to talk a little bit before we get down to the, to the meat of the nut. We got we to crack the shell a little bit and recognize that there are some passages in scripture that if you don't take them in the context in which they were written, you might just miss it a little bit. In, in fact, there are some places where we, we refer to and some scholars refer to certain passages of scripture as you're going to love this word. Clobber texts. You know what a clobber text is? It's a text that we sometimes pluck right out of context and we weaponize it to use against a person or a people or a group and we, we clobber them with it. Yeah, can I give you some examples of some clobber texts? And this word of God is, is fully inspired. It is unlike any other word that you will ever read. And yet we can abuse this word. For example, there are places in the New Testament where if you listen to Paul talk about women, if you don't understand the context in which he is speaking, it's easy to take one or two verses out of Paul out of context and weaponize those verses against women because it sounds out of context like he thinks that women don't belong in the church and the women should keep quiet in the church and that women shouldn't lead in pastoral offices and use pastoral gifts in the church. Well, you, you and I know that that is not the case. In fact, here at JCBC, we affirm the call of God on all people, old, young, male, female. And that's something that I'm not just saying because there are more women pastors on my staff than men. I'm not just... <laughs> I'm not just hedging my bets. Two of them are close by over here within, within swinging distance. So 
But we know that we have seen some texts used as clobber texts. There are some texts used as clobber texts in regard to sexuality. Because we know that there are seven places in the Bible that speak about homosexual behaviors. But if you're not responsible with understanding the context, you can pluck something right out of, I don't know, Leviticus. Because I know, I know you, you, you read that for your daily devotions, I know. But we'll go to Leviticus and we dust off that book and get to the one place that we pluck one verse out of to weaponize and use as an argument for a very complex matter. So there are clobber texts that we sometimes use. And I wanna say that in some ways, this is a kind of clobber text, it can be, because you know why? This word is not just what I put up on the screen a moment ago. The fuller verse sounds like this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now the first middle and last thing I want you to hear your pastor say is that your pastor believes every single word on the screen right there. I believe that verse in its entirety. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I believe that with my whole heart. And I also know that nine times out of 10, when I hear that verse quoted, I hear it usually in reference to explaining why some people think that all the people of all the other religions in the world are not going to heaven. And can we just pause for just a moment here to say that it is above the pay grade of everybody in this room to decide who gets into God's heaven. I mean, I'm not going to try it. And you say, well, but there are places in the scripture that tell us how to get to heaven. And it's about Jesus and Christ is the way. Absolutely. Christ is the way. But if you use it irresponsibly, it could actually do more damage for the witness of Christ than good. So we got to admit that it's above the pay grade of any of us to say who gets into God's good heaven. But at the same time, can we also agree that Jesus did not come to establish a good religion? Jesus didn't come to establish a dominant religion that's better than everything else. You know, we're in March Mission's Madness. He didn't come to establish like a, like a belief bracket that is in competition with one another and one wins by the end of the month. No. In fact, I can't, I can't forget the conversation that took place. My son Jackson was in middle school. I've told you this story before. He was in middle school and he gets in this debate, this conversation, an argument with his teacher and with the class members because the teacher throws a pop quiz and they say, okay, who was the founder of Islam? And the kids said, uh, Muhammad, good. Who was the founder of Judaism? Some of the kids said, Moses, okay, good. Who was the founder of Christianity? And all the kids said, Jesus and Jackson. Typical PK moment here. Says, uh, no, he wasn't. And like, yeah, no, Jesus was the head of the church. Jesus was the founder of Christianity. And, 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 and Jackson said, no, he wasn't. And they said, okay, smarty pants. Who was? And then, then he said, well, I don't know, probably Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, or maybe some of the early apostles, but it wasn't decided until the end of the first century around the year 90 at the Council of Jamnia that we were a whole new, and I'm like, that's how we roll at night at the king's house, right? And he was right. He was right. Jesus did not come to establish a great religion. Jesus came to demonstrate the one and only way to the heart of the Father. And that is through a relationship, not a religion. Now, 
We're going to unpack that for just a moment or two, but I got to start there because unless you know the context, then we miss altogether the power. This verse is actually better than who's going to heaven and who's not going to heaven. It's better than ranking the religions of the world. Here's the context. It's the last night of his life. The next day, he would be hung high and stretched wide upon a cross. And he has a meal with his closest friends. They have a Seder meal. Then he takes the bread and cup and blesses it and says, do this in remembrance of me. Then he takes a towel and washes their feet and says to them, now, you should learn to do to one another as I have done to you. You should love and serve one another. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. And then the night got dark. Because then the tone changed. And he said to them, now, the hour has come. And I'm going away. And where I am going, you cannot come with me yet. And it filled them with abject fear. They were jilted into paralysis. What do you mean you're going away and we cannot come? This has been their life for three or more years. They ate with him. They camped with him. They served. They loved. They worshiped. They worked. They healed with him. They laughed they cried with him and he's going away. Have you ever been confronted with news that has so jilted you into paralysis that now you don't know what tomorrow holds? Do, do you know what it means to have every assumption that you ever made about your tomorrow, every plan that you have ever orchestrated about your tomorrow suddenly be on the table and up for grabs. What do you mean you're going somewhere and we can't come with you? So JCBC has a production director, Sam Bazemore. He's awesome. I don't know if he's up there or in the other room right now. He does amazing things. He, he, he leads a team of people who do amazing things so that we can do what we do here. He and his wife, Laura, just had their third baby. Just a few weeks ago, baby Helen. They have two amazing little boys and now baby Helen. And do you know, shortly after the birth, after they get, well, they didn't give birth to anything. She gave birth. She, just to be clear about that, Sam made some contributions, but she gave birth. And a few weeks after that, I look up, and, and she's walking into the church hallways and, and she's got this baby strapped to her with this contraption that looks like a Jedi Knight. I mean, she's totally hands-free. The baby is there stuck to her. and She's got the other boys on both sides and she's rocking it like she's a professional. I mean, like just right in stride, like she's been doing this for years. It was, it was I mean, she had just had the baby like 10 minutes before. And, and there she is like rocking. I'm like, wow. And it occurs to me that that's so very different than the way it felt when we left the hospital with Nathan, our firstborn. Because we, we were there for a while and I've told you before, but it was a difficult time. I got in trouble from Laura for telling you too many details a few years ago about a very, very traumatic first birth. And there we are after a couple of days in the hospital 
And this woman comes in, this, this nurse comes in and, and has these papers. They bring Nathan in and he's in this little amazing little cart that keeps him warm and tucked in and swaddled. And it's amazing. And it's just one, she brings him in, brings some papers. Dad, I need you to sign some things. Okay, I'm signing. Hey, buddy, how you doing? I'm signing next paper. Okay, sign. Hey, you look so cute. Hey, you okay, babe? Babe, you doing okay? Good. I'm signing papers, signing papers. I get to the last paper and she takes them, stacks them, says, okay, you're good. And I said, for what? And she said, you're good to go. I said, go where? <laughs> so you, get, you, can, you can go home. I'm like, no, we're not ready to go home. Are you crazy? I mean, I don't have the manual. You've not given me like something to download. But we are not ready for this, right? And she's like, listen, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> And, and I'm like, well, can, can we take like the lactation specialist with us? Can we take this little card or something? We are not ready. At times, that's a silly example to illustrate to you. At times you're confronted with information that you're not ready for. Sometimes you're not ready and it, and it's, it makes you stick into a state of paralysis. And, and some of you know what I mean at a far more profound level. They acquired my company. And the job that I had been trained for and earned is now like I've never, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. And now I've got people looking over me that never looked over me before. And I have people that I'm overlooking that I don't want to be looking. I don't know where I am anymore. Everything's on the table. Or after the diagnosis, you come through the grief of recognizing this could be a long haul, then you go through the treatments. And after weeks and weeks and weeks of treatments, you're beginning to think, okay, this is gonna be okay. And you make plans. At the end of the treatment, this is what we're gonna do. Uh, listen, I'm gonna grow my hair back. And this time, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna color it. And it's gonna be a different style. And I'm gonna look good. And it's gonna be summertime, so we're gonna go to the, to the beach. We're gonna have a great trip. It's gonna be amazing once I have to get rid of all this day-by-day -day treatment stuff. And then you get to the end of the treatment and the oncology report comes back to say, sorry, it didn't work. What do you mean you are going away? And we can't go? Everything that we have prepared for has led us to follow you. And sensing that pain and that uncertainty and that fear, Jesus speaks to them and we read his words in John 14 verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, no, no Lord. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, what? you don't, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know the Father. 
Also, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Something very powerful is happening in this exchange between Jesus and Thomas and the other disciples who were overhearing. They have lived every waking moment with him and they are confronted by something that jilts them into ambiguity, a liminal space of uncertainty. And yet they've been with him all this time and still don't know the way. Later on in chapter 14, you know what else gets said? Thomas stops speaking and Philip speaks up. And Philip's like, okay, well, hey, before you go, that's a paraphrase, he didn't really. At least can you show us the Father? And Jesus says, show us the, show us the Father? Where have you been? How can we be together this long and spend this much time and you not know? And he goes on to say again and again and again, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For the Father and I are one. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And if you are looking at me, you are looking at the face of the Father. You know what's interesting to me? You can know Jesus and love Jesus. You could follow Jesus, be a disciple of Jesus. You can be as close to him at the campfire where you are staying overnight and still feel a little bit lost from time to time. Sometimes you can love Jesus, want Jesus, follow Jesus, and still come to a season where I don't know which way to go? I don't know the way. Sometimes I think that God disrupts our lives to remind us the way. Sometimes I think God wants to mess with us. I mean that. Not in a sinister way, but in a loving way to teach us something. Because the problem is, and I want to call it a holy disruption, that sometimes when our lives find some continuity that works for us, when we're in the middle of a rhythm that we finally worked on, now, okay, now we got us a rhythm. Now we got us a pace. Now life is just where I wanted it. There's continuity. God will disrupt our continuity and what we expect is coming. And why? I don't know, but I, I've got a... I've got a hunch it's because continuity breeds, well, familiarity. That's good, right? We want familiarity. It's good. But familiarity sometimes breeds predictability. We all want lives that are predictable. That's good, right? But sometimes predictability will breed a kind of comfort that in the long run feels right but fuels the illusion of control. Now, in case you're just tuning in, I just said something. We want a life of continuity because continuity brings familiarity and familiarity breeds um, 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 predictability. And predictability gives us comfort and we all want comfort. But God will sometimes institute a holy disruption because that comfort will inevitably lead us to the illusion of control. 
And we do that in every realm of our lives. We assume that if we work hard enough and we try hard enough, we can know the end from the beginning of a thing and we'll just control our way there to the end. Thomas, Philip, Sean, y'all. And he will disrupt us. You know why? Not to torment us. But so that we learn along the way, this is not about your way. This is not about your truth. And this is not about your life. It's not Burger King. You don't get it your way right away. It's about I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And the disciples had to come to grips with the reality that there are so many forces at work in the human heart that make us want to control the outcome of this life. And Christ came to disrupt the illusion of control so that we might recognize our total dependence is upon the one whose face we've seen. You realize that there was in Philip and in Thomas everything they will have ever needed to find their way to the heart of the Father because they had met him. When you meet the Christ of God, there is an access point to the heart of the Father. And what Jesus was attempting to show them was, it's in you because I am in you. Sometimes we trust our GPS better than we trust the spirit that is in us. It says turn here and you, you have a gut feeling I have three more exits to go, but you turn there. Now you're in the middle of who knows where and you're in a fight with your wife because you shouldn't have listened to GPS. You should, should have listened to her. And is that just me? I don't know. So Jesus turns to Thomas and says, Thomas, what are you talking about? You don't know the way. We've been together so long. All right, listen, have, did you know, did you, did, you, did you notice the way that I loved people who were unlovely? Did you notice the way in which we came across people whose lives were fragmented because of choices they've made and how I convinced them they're not finished yet? Did you notice the way in which I gave grace and mercy and forgiveness and power to those who had no power? Did you notice the way in which I welcomed in those who were unwelcome everywhere else? He said, did you notice the truth that I spoke? Did you notice I spoke truth to power, even if it cost me everything? Did you notice the truth that I spoke about the kingdom of God, that it's not something that you wait for at the end of life. It's not something that you earn by the meritocracy by which you set up your life, but it's something that's breaking in right here and right now. Did you hear me telling the truth about that, Thomas? And did you see me living a life of congruency between what I said with my lips and what I did with my life. Did you see that? That's the truth, Thomas. And did you see the life that I came to offer? Have you embraced a life of simplicity and self-emptying humility and sacrifice? Have you accepted a life of contentment in me? Because if you saw any of that, then you will know I am the way and the truth and the life. And there is no other way to the heart of the Father. See, sometimes I like to paraphrase what we're talking about here and just to bring it down to to a simpler level that the Jesus way is the truth about life. The Jesus way is the truth about life. And they had to come to grips with this reality. 
just like you and, and I do. Sometimes we become so, so dependent on outside sources to guide our paths that we forget we have been given a holy GPS mechanism in the heart. We're always looking for the answer out there. Maybe that book and that person and, and that spiritual friend and that therapist and, and all those are great things. I have all those in my life. But at the end of the day, the way to the heart of the Father is already in you if you know Christ. Now, can we go just a bit deeper? Just a bit deeper. So, we know that in the story it's Jesus doing the talking. Did you know that in chapter 14 of John, all three persons of the Holy Trinity are mentioned in John 14, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We hear Jesus say it again and again. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Uh, the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. And together, if you look at me, you're seeing the face of the Father. Later on in chapter 14, the part that we didn't read, he says, you know what? But I'm not going to leave you alone. Don't worry. I'm not going to leave you like, a, like an orphan. I'm sending an advocate, a parakletos, a, a paraclete, a, an advocate who stands right next to you, the Spirit. And that Spirit will not only stand right next to you, but will be in you. In other words... If you know me, the Christ of God, you get access to the whole thing. You have access to the providence of the Father, the salvation of the Son, and the company of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right? So, but something has to be unpacked here that is crucial, crucial. I'm going to even leave the five-minute joke aside because I see the time. But I'm just going to keep preaching. You're welcome to go to lunch. Next time you ought to pack one. Scripture is clear that the thing that was happening in Jesus was not just about Jesus. Now, you and I know Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee. He apprenticed with his father in the carpenter shop. He was a Galilean carpenter. He had calloused hands and splinters in his finger and, and fingers, and he was an itinerant preacher, a rabbi who can draw a crowd. But none of those reasons are why you and I call him Lord. We call him Lord because we believe that he is the Christ of God. In Hebrew, we would call that the Messiah, the Shia, the anointed, the one set apart by God, the only one. In Greek, we would say Christos, the Christ, the eternal Christ of God living in the person of Jesus. Now, that deserves a moment. The eternal Christ of God. There are words that we use to describe that. And that is the eternal Christ, the cosmic Christ, the universal Christ, the part of Jesus that preceded Jesus. Are you tracking with me? That there was one born with dark skin and calloused hands as an adult who was Jesus. But in that person, the fullness of eternal God was pleased to dwell. So that which was in Jesus, that pre-existed Jesus, we call the preeminent Christ. The one who at creation was the divine energy of God that poured into creation the very fingerprints of God. This is why when Paul in Romans says, look, even the natural person can look around to nature and see the evidence of, of such a beautiful creation and say to themselves, even religionless as they may be, there must be a creator out there somewhere. This is so beautiful, it can't just exist. There must be something more. And that more 
is the Christ of God who before time has been drawing humankind into relationship. It's the Christ of God who shows up in a fiery bush. It's the Christ of God who speaks from Balaam's animal. I'm cleaning the language up there. It's the Christ of God who again and again infuses into this created world an attempt of God to draw humans into relationship with God. So in scripture, we read about it. In places in the New Testament where they try to wrap words around this mystery that is so glorious, in Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 15, listen to these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or power, rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, the Christ of God, eternally before the ages, was before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that we might come to have first place in everything. So that he might come to have first place in everything. And here is the money verse. Here is what you paid for at the door. Did you pay something at the door? This, this is the price of admission right here. Watch this. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God, Christ, was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross that in this person, Jesus, the fullness of God's holy Christ, that part of God's energy that from before time was trying to draw people into a relationship with God, that fullness was pleased to dwell in him, fully God, fully human. And it's not only there, but the gospel writer of John to begin his gospel actually tries to wrap words around it on his own when he says in John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word. Now stop there because the word there doesn't mean a word on a page. It's capitalized in your Bible, right? It's capitalized because it's the Greek word logos. Logos doesn't mean the spoken word, doesn't mean the written word. Logos was a Greek philosophy. It was a Greek principle. The Greeks believed that the, the divine logos was that one thing in the universe that held the universe together. The early Greeks would be good Star Wars fans. Are you tracking with me? Because they would believe that the thing that holds it together, well, you could call it the logos or you can call it the force. And John knew this and writes to them in a way that they understand and says to them, this divine logos that holds everything together, well, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. This divine logos, this Christ was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being that has come into being. And what has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. And then if you skip down to verse 14, listen to what he says about that invisible thing, that logos, that word of life, that Christ, that force. He says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, 
full of grace and truth. Why am I going to such lengths to tell you about the Christ of God? Because when we come to John chapter 14, verse six, and we hear Jesus say, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. It is the Christ of God speaking. It is the Christ of God, the eternal energy of God that before time has been trying to draw people forward. There is an access point to the heart of the Father and it is Christ. And that is a difference maker because the Christ of God pre-existed not only Jesus and people, but pre-existed every religion. The divine power of God is still at work in the world, loose without our permission. To draw unto God any who would yield themselves to the drawing power of God through the Christ that doesn't seem to stay put where you put him last. Do you realize that changes everything? It changes how we think about our faith. It changes how we think about other religions. It changes how we think about our own religion. Let me just ask you a question. Can we do an experiment here for just a moment? Is it possible for someone to become a Christian? Let's say they're eight years old and they check all the boxes, say all the right words, splash in the waters of baptism. And from that point forward, never pursue Christ again and throughout their entire adulthood live like hell and they live in a way that is contradictory to every way of Christ. And, and they, they live a truth that is the antithesis of every truth the Christ came to establish. And they live in such a way that their life is the polar opposite of the life that he died to provide. Is it possible somebody like that exists? Yeah, bunch of them. So don't you think it may be important that given the complexities of that arrangement, that we let God decide what to do with that person when they die? And if that's true, is it possible then that in a jungle in Southeast Asia, or in the bush of sub-Saharan Africa, or in the tropical rainforest somewhere in South America, there could be somebody whose family generation after generation was a part of a, I don't know, a world religion or tribal religion. And yet, is it possible that they never heard the name Jesus, but they somehow have looked around their world at the the one who, who has created all this around them and they somehow yield themselves in such a way as to order their life in a way that is consistent with the way of the Christ. Is it possible that there is someone in those places that I talked about and described who orders the truth of their life that is consistent and in keeping with the truth of the Christ of God? Is it possible that they live in such a way that their life is in concert with the life that Jesus died to provide? Is it possible somebody like that exists? Then don't you think it may be important that we not get caught up on worrying what God does with them when they die, but rather leave it up to God to be God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. (laughs) Beloved, when I say Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, no one gets to the Father but through him, that is what I mean. I mean it more intensely than you think I mean it. That it is the Christ of God and only the Christ of God through which we access the heart of the Father. I think about Paul 
I may just preach till 2.30 today. I think about Paul. Paul goes to Athens and he looks on the Areopagus. He's standing on the Areopagus. He looks up at the Acropolis, at all the temples to Zeus and Athena. And he sees all these little idols everywhere that have names, inscriptions, dedicated to all the gods that were not Jesus. And he sees one that has an inscription that says, to the unknown God. And you know what he does? Instead of judging them, he says, well done you. Because you, in all the mystery of this universe, have created some space in your heart for the possibility that there may be a mystery out there, a God that you've not met by name. So I'm here to tell you that God has a name and his name is Jesus. Beloved, do you know what your pastor thinks about every other world religion? Listen, they are people who Jesus loves and died for. And, and these, these religions, I believe, and I know it sounds a little presumptuous, and I, but I believe that everything that they are attempting to pursue is Christ without knowing him by name. That means, you know what that means? That means suddenly it's not about, let's spend all our energies worrying about are the Hindus and the Buddhists and, and, and the Muslims, uh, are they gonna find the way? How about, how about have you? How about have I? How is my life in concert with the way, the truth, the life? Because there is no other way to the heart of the Father but through Him.